text for the sermon this morning comes from Acts chapter 7. We continue our study of the book of Acts, and specifically Stephen's sermon. And we're going to be having a very focused look at the temple today, really examining uh, the accusation that was brought against Stephen that he had blasphemed the temple. And with that in mind, we're not going to read the entirety of, of Acts 7, but we're going to read verses 44 through 50, where, where Stephen has a, this very focused examination of both the tabernacle and the temple. So let's hear God's word as we find it in Acts 7, verse 44 through 50. Our fathers had a tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in the temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? As we read the account of Stephen's sermon in Acts 7, As we read the reaction of the Jews to that sermon, we might be a bit surprised. A cursory look at this sermon, it seems that Stephen is just giving what what some have called a dull summary of the history of the people of Israel. Sure, towards the end of this sermon, Stephen starts addressing specifically the, the, the people. He starts addressing his audience He says some very convicting and accusatory words against his audience. It almost seems to be an afterthought to an otherwise very plain sermon. And with that perspective, it might even shock us to read the reaction of the Jews to what Stephen said. We read in verse 54 that when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. And then read that they cast him out of the city of Jerusalem and stoned him with stones. Seems surprising. And if you do a cursory examination of Stephen's sermons, Stephen's sermon, Stephen has not really said anything different than what Peter has said in his sermon. Peter, just like Stephen, accused the Jews of killing Jesus. There's much more going on in this sermon than simply what you might get from a first cursory reading of it. In this sermon, Stephen starts to demonstrate that the temple is no longer necessary for the true worship of God. And while Stephen demonstrates that he, according to the correct understanding of Scripture, has not blasphemed the holy place and changed the customs of Moses, yet, according to the beliefs of the Jews... He has most certainly blasphemed the temple and is changing their customs. Now, to demonstrate this, we're going to have to uh, spend 
uh, we're going to have to uh, spend some time coming to a correct understanding of the temple and the tabernacle. We're going to need to, to spend a focused time examining what the temple and the tabernacle were and what function they had in the life of, of the people of Israel. And so this morning's sermon is really going to be a, a very topical examination of both the tabernacle and temple. And this will prepare us for this afternoon's sermon where we really get to the meat of what Stephen is arguing in his sermon. And so I really encourage you to, to try to attend both services today. Uh, if you're to rightly understand what, what Stephen's getting at here, you're going to need, need both sermons. Because, and, and this afternoon we're going to be really focusing on the freedom that we as believers in the New Testament have in our worship of the Lord. This morning, let us prepare for that, that examination. Let's prepare for considering the freedom that we have in our worship in Christ by considering some of the fundamental features of Old Testament worship, and specifically how the Israelites understood that heaven was indeed the Lord's throne. So as we start this study, let's first consider the purpose of the tabernacle. To do this, we're going to need to travel back in time to about 1450 B.C. In 1450, around 1450 B.C., we have the first mention of the tabernacle. We find that in Exodus 25, verse 8, where the Lord tells Moses, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. God told Moses to have the people of Israel make him a sanctuary, make him a tabernacle so that he could dwell among them. And here it's very evident that the primary function of the tabernacle is that it existed so that the Lord might dwell among his covenant people. We're given a little more detail about this dwelling in the verses that speak of the Ark of the Testimony. Now, children, you'll recall that there are two arcs spoken of in Scripture. You have the ark uh, that was during the time of Noah. That was that large boat that uh, was a means by which God delivered Noah and his family from the flood. But you also have the ark of the testimony or the ark of the covenant. This ark was a golden box with a mercy seat and two cherubim on top of it. Cherubim are these spiritual beings which we read about in Ezekiel 10. This ark was about four feet long and and two feet wide, and the ark was placed in the most holy place of the tabernacle. It was in a small square room in in the back of the tabernacle that was separated from everything else by, by a veil. And thus, the, the tabernacle, the, this large tent, was essentially where this ark would be housed. We read in Exodus that the Lord says that where the ark was, there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony. Above everything which I will give you in commandment, sorry, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. And so one of the primary functions of the tabernacle is that it is this, this house for, for the ark. 
And the ark is where God is dwelling, where God is going to speak to his people. And this is important to take note of because the imagery of the ark should make us consider a few things. What do you think about when you hear that description of the mercy seat? We are told that the mercy seat had one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. The Lord told them that you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat, and the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. What does that imagery remind you of? I think it should remind us of, of two passages in particular. First there is Isaiah 6, where Isaiah describes the, the throne room of God. We read in Isaiah 6 that Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And the seraphim cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Here are these, these two cherubim on this ark. And, and we should be thinking, this is, this is a small sample of, of maybe that throne room of God. It was to be a, a picture of God's heavenly throne room. It was to be a type of, of the place where God dwelt. And so God is commanding Israel to make something so that he can dwell with them. In the wider context of, of world history, this is revolutionary. Because the last time that God dwelt with his creation was in Eden. Prior to the fall, God dwelt with Adam and Eve, he talked with them in the garden. He, he fellowshiped with them. But after they had sinned by eating of the tree, of the fruit, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we read in Genesis 3, verse 8, that, that when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. There's no longer this intimate communion Adam and Eve are hiding from God. And, and that separation becomes even more distinct after the Lord speaks to them and discovers what has happened. We read that God drove them out of the Garden of Eden. God drove them out of his presence so that they could not take of the fruit of the tree of life and live forever. And, and this account in Genesis 3 is that second passage that should come to mind when we think of the ark. First passage being Isaiah 6, and the second passage being Genesis 3. Because Genesis 3 connects us with the ark because we read that God placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God placed cherubim in the Garden of Eden. God commanded that there were to be two cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, on the Ark of Testimony. 
And this is the first place since the Genesis account that cherubim are spoken of in Scripture. And so in the mind of the Israelites, as soon as he heard that there were cherubim on the ark, his mind would immediately go back to the Genesis account. His mind would immediately go back to the fact that there were cherubim preventing Adam and Eve from going back into the Garden of Eden. These cherubim were, were separating Adam and Eve from the presence of God. And so, so what's the ark hinting at? What's the ark telling the people of Israel? Well, the ark is hinting at the possibility of Eden being restored to the people of Israel. It's a hint that's God, of God coming down and dwelling with the people of Israel in perfection. It's a possibility of the blessing of Eden being restored and God dwelling once again with his people. This is realized in a dramatic way when the tabernacle is completed. We read in Exodus 40, verse 34 through 35, that the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because a cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God's glory comes down and descends into the tabernacle. And that glory is so great and awesome that Moses cannot even enter it. God shows, once the tabernacle is completed, that this is his peculiar and special dwelling place. And so God's presence was in the tabernacle as a picture of the blessing of Eden being restored. And God in all the glory of his heavenly throne room dwelling right in the midst of the encampment of Israel. I don't want to distract you guys uh, too much, uh, but I, I printed out uh, uh, a little uh, sheet of paper which uh, uh, has uh, pictures of the tabernacle and, and it shows exactly where the tabernacle would be situated in the encampment. And, and if you don't have one, well, I'll grab one for you after the, the ser- sermon. Uh, but the, the tabernacle was situated right in the middle of the entire camp, encampment of Israel. And it, it's just this beautiful demonstration that God is truly dwelling right in the middle, right in the center of his people. And this imagery continues with the construction of the temple. And now let's, let's jump ahead about... Um, 500 years or so to about the year 1000 B.C. We've gone from 1450 B.C. to about 1000 B.C. And you recall that David wanted to build a temple for God to dwell in. We read in 2 Samuel 7 verses 1 through 2, Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around. And the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar. The ark of God dwells inside a tent curtains. David was concerned that the ark was dwelling in a very temporary and movable structure. David thought God deserved better. That if he as king was dwelling in an impressive house, well, surely the Lord, the true king of Israel, deserved something similar. 
But God told David, Would you build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. And God ended up telling David that his son Solomon would indeed build a temple. But the Lord implies that a temple is not truly necessary for him. He says in 2 Samuel 7 verse 7, Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? The Lord did not require a temple, but the Lord condescends to David's concerns about the need for the Lord to have a house to dwell in. And he allows and, and commands Solomon to build that house. Solomon, after he constructs the temple, has a very real sense of the inadequacy of the temple. And here I encourage you to turn in your Bibles with me to, to 1 Kings 8. We'll be spending a little bit of time here in 1 Kings 8. This speaks of the um, dedication of the temple, the completion of it, and, and includes Solomon's prayer. First Kings eight, and and the first thing I want you to note is a similarity between the temple and the tabernacle. Notice where the ark is placed in the temple. We read there in First Kings eight verse six. Then the priests brought in the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple, to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their two wings over the place of the Ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the Ark and its poles. Uh, we, we didn't have time to read this, but, but uh, Solomon had constructed in the temple two massive cherubim that would be even over the cherubim that are over the, over the Ark, over the mercy seat. And so once again, you have that image of the cherubim and both Eden and the heavenly throne room of the Lord. And the ark, just like with the, temp with the tabernacle, was placed in this square room at the back of the temple with a veil separating it from everything else. But First Kings also recounts how the Lord dwelt in the temple in the distinct way that he dwelt in the tabernacle. We're given a very similar account of what we read earlier in Exodus about that cloud of glory coming down. You read in verses 10 through 11, it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. This is the Lord filled the tabernacle with a cloud of his glory, so he filled the temple with that cloud. The psalm declares in verse 12, the Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. See, Solomon's excitement as he sees the Lord descending upon the temple. But that's not all that Solomon says. Solomon goes on to speak of the inadequacy 
of this temple. He says in verse 27, the words that Stephen quotes in his sermon in the Acts, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Solomon has the understanding that the temple is, is not truly where God dwells. Indeed, God cannot dwell in a temple made with hands. It cannot contain the glory and the awesome power of God. And you see this in a small way with that with cloud that came down. The cloud completely submersed everything. Yes, God has, has a special, a unique dwelling there. He's a very visible expression of his dwelling there in the temple and in the tabernacle. But Solomon knows that God is infinite and eternal and is not limited to a certain place in time and space. And you see this, too, in the rest of Solomon's prayer. And let me just draw your attention to, to some uh, few key phrases that he, repeat, he, he repeats. The main thrust of Solomon's prayer is that he petitions the Lord that he would hear the prayers of those who are contrite and repentant. And Solomon, throughout this prayer, acknowledges that God is not simply in the temple, but in heaven. Solomon says in verse 30, he calls upon the Lord to hear in heaven your dwelling place. He says in verse 32, here in heaven. He says in verse 34, then here in heaven. Verse 36, then here in heaven. Verse 39, here in heaven your dwelling place. Verse 43, here in heaven your dwelling place. And finally, verse 49, here in heaven your dwelling place. Psalm repeats that refrain, emphasizing that, that, no, the, the temple isn't truly where you dwell. You dwell in heaven, and you hear us in heaven, and that this temple is, is simply a, a picture. Yes, it's, it's a, a place where you uniquely and, and visibly reside, but your dwelling place is actually truly in heaven. Solomon has a profound understanding of the majesty and the infinite glory and power of God in this prayer. Let's now, so that's a, a, a brief overview. Much more could be said about both the tabernacle and the temple, but that's a, a very brief overview of, of those two buildings. Now let's go and consider the importance of the temple. And to do that, let's jump forward in history about a thousand years to the time of Christ. And let's especially consider the Jews' reverence for the temple. Mark 14, we are given a historical account of Jesus' betrayal and trial. I want to draw your attention specifically to, to Mark 14, verse 58. Because in that verse, we are given a sample of the Jews' thoughts on the temple. Jesus is before the Sanhedrin. He's about to be crucified. And we read that false witnesses came against him, saying, We heard Jesus say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. And we can read that account, and we can 
be left wondering what was so serious about that statement that it would merit someone bringing another person before a court and saying, he said this, he, he deserves to die. What evidently was, in, in the Jews' minds, a serious crime. Because after, after the high priest hears those, those false witnesses say that, he, he stands up and he asks Jesus, do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? And so what made these charges so serious? Well, first, we must notice the temple was not simply a building. There are over 7,000 churches in Oklahoma City. I I think that that number is even a a little low. 7,000 churches in Oklahoma City. And with that number of churches it is important for us to recognize that the temple was not some church building among many. No, the temple was the religious building for the Jews. It was a place that they went to worship God. Yes, they they gathered in in smaller groups throughout the year when they weren't able to to go to the temple. They gathered in in the synagogues, typically about 10 to, to 15 people in each synagogue, Uh, but the temple was the place where worship happened. The temple was a place where the sacrifices were performed. No sacrifices were ever performed in the synagogues. The temple was the place where the religious feasts and festivals were observed. The temple was the central place for the worship of God in all the world. That's why when you you read in Acts, especially in Acts 2, of all those nations hearing uh, that speaking in tongues. That was because all those people were there to observe the feasts and the festivals. They couldn't do that in Rome. They couldn't do that in Alexandria. They couldn't do that in Athens. They had to come to Jerusalem to worship God. The temple was the central place for the worship of God in all the world. The second thing to take note of is that the temple was intimately connected to the religious service of the Israelites. The religious acts that happened in the temple could not be performed anywhere else. And those were religious acts were what God required of the Jews. The Jews were required to offer and sacrifice animals to the Lord. And the only place that could legitimately happen was in the temple. All other sacrifices would be a breach in the law of God. This was because the tabernacle and the temple were central to the administration of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the covenant of grace is that promise and declaration that God, out of his mere grace and pleasure, will save a people will save his people by a mediator. This covenant of grace is of the exact same substance as the covenant of grace by which God saves his people today. It is one and the same covenant. The object of faith for believers in the Old Testament was Jesus Christ, and he is the object of faith for believers today. Yet, in the Old Testament, the administration of that covenant is distinct. It was distinct. 
The Old Testament, that covenant, was administered through things like sacrifices, through circumcision, through Passover, through the rites and rituals that occurred in the tabernacle and temple. In the New Testament, however, the covenant of grace is administered through things such as preaching of the word, sacraments of, of, of baptism, and the Lord's Supper. And what does that have to do with the words of Jesus and those words that the false witnesses brought against Jesus? Well, for, for Jesus and Stephen to say that the temple would be destroyed, just think what that meant for the Jews. To hear that the temple would be destroyed. Even though that's not what Christ was referring to, as we'll see in a little bit. To hear that the temple was going to be destroyed. Well, that was not simply the destruction of a building for them. It wasn't even the destruction of a very beautiful and expensive building. It was a destruction in a very real sense. of The worship of God. As a destruction of crucial aspects of the administration of the covenant of grace. This was the place where worship happened and the sacrifices happened. To have someone say, well, we're going to go and destroy that. Well, that would be a direct attack upon the worship of God. This would, it's hard to imagine exactly what that would be like today if someone were to do that, but you know, we could we could think that that might be like someone coming in and saying, "Well, I'm going to take away all your psalm psalm books. I'm going to take away your Bibles. You're not allowed to administer uh, the Lord's Supper or baptism anymore. You're not allowed to preach. And, and not only that, but I'm going to completely change the way you worship God." There's even more context we need to consider here. Last time the temple was destroyed was when the Babylonians came in 587 B.C. The Babylonians came to Jerusalem. It was the Lord coming and judging Israel for their sins. And for the Jews to hear that the temple was going to be destroyed again. It's for them to hear the accusation that they were in sin. That they were worthy of the judgment of God. And God was going to remove the special presence from the people of Israel. It was for these prideful and arrogant religious leaders. Remember what Jesus says about the, the Sadducees and the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember what he says they thought they were righteous. To hear that the temple was going to be destroyed was a declaration to them that, no, you are not righteous. You are worthy of the judgment of God, and God's going to destroy the temple. And understanding all that helps us see why the Jews took it so seriously. And Jesus said that he was going to destroy this temple and in three days raise it again. It helps us understand why they took it so seriously when Stephen said something similar. I want to address one more aspect about, about the accusations that, that the Jews brought against both Jesus and Stephen about the destruction of the temple. And this is the aspect of false witnesses. With both the accusation against Jesus and against Stephen, false witnesses were brought in. 
In the case of Christ, these false witnesses said that Christ was speaking of the actual physical temple. The writers of the epistle, uh, uh, sorry, of the gospels, make it clear. They make it abundantly clear that Christ wasn't talking about the actual physical temple. Christ was talking about his, his own body. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that this afternoon. Christ was referring to the temple of his body. That his body was going to be destroyed. And in three days it would, be, it would rise again. Christ was not speaking about the actual temple. At that specific time, with, that, with those words that uh, those false witnesses brought against him. Christ did speak about the actual destruction of the temple. You find that in Matthew 24. That's not what they're bringing up. And so, so in that sense, they're, they're false witnesses. In the case of Stephen, uh, and what they're bringing against Stephen, they are evidently false witnesses in their charge that Stephen was blaspheming God, Moses, and the holy place. Stephen makes it abundantly clear especially as we see, we'll see this afternoon, that he has no malice or hatred towards the temple or the holy place. But rather, with the coming of Christ, there's a change in the way that God is to be worshipped. So, how do we conclude that study? Perhaps the best way for us to conclude is with a statement that the Lord himself made in the prophecy of Isaiah Heaven is my throne. God is infinite in his glory and perfect in his holiness. For him to come and dwell amongst sinful men, even in the limited capacity of the tabernacle and temple, even even though with both the tabernacle and the temple, God was still separate from them. Yes, he, he was dwelling in the midst of them, but it was only the high priest who could go into the most holy place. The Ark of the, of the Covenant was separated from Israel by this veil. That it was still a mercy and grace of God. That He would dwell, the Holy One of Israel will dwell among sinners. As we consider that, that should be a comfort and an encouragement to us. It's a declaration of the heart of God towards sinners. That he would not just leave us for judgment and condemnation. That he would pave a way for him to dwell among us. He did that first with, with the temple and the tabernacle. He would do that ultimately through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ who dwelt among us, who became flesh. Heaven is God's throne. And what are we that God would dwell among us? But he has, God has dwelt among us. And that should comfort and encourage us, knowing that he is God of mercy and delights to save a people for himself. As Psalm 8 says, when it speaks of Christ, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you. 
And Lord, as we've heard this morning about how you have come and dwelt among your people in times past through the, the tabernacle and the temple, as we've briefly considered even how you have dwelt among us through the person of the Lord of Jesus Christ. Lord, we are humbled that you would show such grace to sinners as ourselves. And we thank you, O Lord, that you are a God who is, who is compassionate, and that you have dwelt among the sinners. Lord, we pray that you would bless us as we go to our time of fellowship. We pray, O Lord, that we would meditate upon these things and meditate upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.